invite you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3. This morning will be the last of our study for at least uh, several weeks uh, in the book of Hebrews. We'll wrap up the, this first portion as next week uh, we begin the Advent season. It's uh, still hard to believe that uh, Advent and Christmas is already here. Uh, but we'll begin a Advent series next week that we're titling uh, Wise Men Still Give Good Gifts. And we'll be focusing on the gifts of the, the wise men that were brought to Mary and Joseph and the, uh, and, and the young infant, or at least uh, maybe toddler Jesus in, uh, uh, in, in the early days, and how those gifts not only apply to us, but can be given by us uh, to our Lord today. Uh, but today we focus on uh, this letter this, that we've been looking at, this letter to the Hebrews. Uh, chapter 3, we'll be looking at verses 7 through 19, or picking up in verse 7, continuing through the end of this chapter. Hebrews 3, 7, hear the word of our God. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all of those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom? Was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. The word of our God. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word, we pray that you would speak to us now, that by this word you may shape us not only in mind, uh, but in life, uh, because you shape our affections. Enable us to receive your wisdom. Enable us to, uh, to uh, live our lives in accord and to seek you as we recognize how great your love has been for us. Lord, bless us in this time of study of your word. We pray for our good and for your glory. We pray it in Christ Jesus, our King. Amen. It's been 20 years since the noted Harvard sociologist Robert Putnam published his best-selling book titled Bowling Alone. If you've not read uh, the book, which I assume many probably have not, the title of the book comes from one of the findings in the study that Putnam and his associates were engaged in the study was a broader study, but within the study, they, they recognized that there was a, 
a trend that was emerging in the American culture. They found that at the time of the publication, that there were more Americans that were going bowling every single week than had ever been bowling, gone bowling before in history. But even while more people were going bowling each week, there were fewer people participating in bowling leagues than had been true in previous generations. And so while there were more people that were participating, there were few people that were fewer people that were participating together in a committed community of, of bowling leagues. Hence, hence the title of the book, Bowling Alone. Uh, but the reason that that was so significant is Putnam and his associates said that this idea and this, this uh, finding about the, the trends in bowling were a vivid reflection of trends that were uh, beginning to emerge in the culture as a whole. And it just painted the picture that was vivid and memorable. But within the culture, they found that people were more active than ever, and yet people were lonelier than ever because even in their activity, there was less and less participation in groups or organizations or things that would bring people together. People were busier and lonelier because they were isolated from one another. They were living their lives more and more as rugged individualists. And as a result, the effects of the culture, it, it was having an effect on, on, on people's lives, emotionally, relationally, and then society as a whole. In fact, somewhat sarcastically, still pointed at the time, uh, Putnam says this, at the time of his publication, there were more people that were watching the TV show Friends than actually had friends. Well, it's been 20 years, but there's not been any reversal of those trends. We continue to be an incredibly busy people. And many, and many are very, very lonely people as well. We are aware of the trends, but we are no better off. Now, there's been a lot that's been written about the, the social and the emotional benefits of being part of a community. But as we look at this passage that's before us in Hebrews chapter 3 this morning, uh, the author points us to the spiritual benefit of being part of community as well. As we look at this passage, it will and it unfolds, we're going to look at it in this way. First, we, we see a, a lesson to be learned. We have a warning that we need to be aware of and we need to heed. And then we have a remedy for the problem uh, that we all experience living in our lives, not only today, but it's a universal problem and it's an ageist problem. That idea of loneliness, isolation, and the effects that it might have on us. And so we'll begin our study in this as, as the, the lesson to be learned. And, and there's really kind of a preface to the lesson as we work our way through this. Because in verse 7, we, we hear the, the writer says this, uh, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And the word today is significant. And, and the reason it is significant is because the Holy Spirit is speaking today, not just because we're hearing a word and coming from a pulpit, but the Holy Spirit speaks every day to those who are his people. The Spirit speaks and points us in the direction that we are to go. The Spirit reveals to us areas in which we might be uh, 
off base where we have sin in, in our lives and where we are in need of correction. The Spirit points us to the completed work of Christ and reminding us that even though we have sin, that sin has been paid for because God's love is greater than we really often believe. And then points us and empowers us with the ability to do what God wants us to do. And so the writer is telling us, as the believers, he's telling these early believers too, today, if you hear the Holy Spirit speaking, don't harden your heart to it. Be shaped, be directed, be comforted, be guided by that Holy Spirit. But the significance of today is, today is all we have. Because if we were to come back and read this passage tomorrow, tomorrow won't be tomorrow, tomorrow will be today. And so whenever you read this, the issue is this, is today, and it's always today. Listen when God speaks by his Spirit. Because he's speaking, not to scold, but even in correction, as an expression of his love, that we might experience life the way he intended it, the way he designed it. And in speaking, we are having fellowship with him. But the writer of Hebrews, he begins with this, and, and there's kind of this preface, and, and, and this is the lesson ultimately to be learned is, you know, don't harden your heart when the Holy Spirit speaks. Uh, but there's another lesson that we have here that, that he gives. He gives an example of those who didn't listen to that lesson. And then what we have in verses um, 8 and following, and, and really the second part of verse 7 uh, until verse 11, uh, the writer of Hebrews has just copied and pasted a significant part of Psalm 95. And he is pointing back to a period in Israel's history following the Exodus prior to their entering and dwelling within the promised land. A period of time where their hearts were continually hardened against the God who had not only delivered them from slavery, but had continually provided for them and in miraculous ways, oftentimes. And yet, even that was not enough to keep their hearts and to remind them of the way that they are to live. Now, the particular time in history, it certainly was uh, following the Exodus led by Moses. It was after the passing through the Red Sea when the army was chasing them, and as they had their backs up against the wall, they couldn't go back, they couldn't go forward because uh, of the water. Just imagine being down and having to get over to Surrey, but you don't have a boat. Um, this is kind of, and then all of a sudden the whole river opens up and you walk through, and then the river just closes back up on those who are pursuing you. That's the experience that these people had had. And, and then even as they were living on the other side of the Red Sea, even as they were continuing in their, in, in their destination to the land that God had promised to their forefather Abram, that was what uh, Moses was called to do, to take them out of slavery and lead them into the, the promised land. And on their journey there, these people... Uh, we're so fickle. Now, it's understandable while they're going out camping and while they're going out in, in, in this journey that they would have needs and they don't have regular jobs. You know, supermarkets are closed down. They just, you know, how are they going to eat? How are they going to, how are they going to uh, meet their, their basic needs? And, and yet we see that God provided for them miraculously every single day. He provided for them manna, uh, bread, and quail for them to eat and provided water for them as well. 
But as time went on, people began to grumble about the menu. You know, it's not enough that God's providing for them as he's taking them into the destination that they had hoped for. You know, uh, they wanted, you know, a different variety uh, to choose from in their in-flight menu. And they began to grumble. They didn't want any more manna. They didn't want any more quail. Uh, they wanted something else. And then as the water began to grow low, they turned against Moses and, and began to grumble against him and, and argue with him and even threaten him. Moses turned to the Lord, and the Lord said to him, you know, the people have need, I'm going to continue to provide, because it's the nature of our God to provide. He is faithful even when we are faithless. And he said, as far as the water supply, I want you to go and take the staff that you have, and I want you to strike the rock. And out of the rock will flow the water that they need to sustain them. Which should have gotten their attention, because water doesn't come out of a rock, except that God made it so in this case not only to provide for their immediate needs, but also as a pointing to the future when the rock of our salvation, Jesus Christ, would offer himself as the living water. And he would be struck for our benefit. And as the rock was struck and the living water, the water that gave them life or sustained their life came out, they were provided for, which was satisfactory for a short time. One of the things God told them to do is take the promised land, the land that I promised to you, that I, I'm going to give to you. It's yours. You just need to take it. Now, there's some people that are living there right now. They're not supposed to be there. Go move them out. Don't leave any of them here. It doesn't matter whether they're in your way or not. Just clear out everything. And they sent spies out to kind of check out that land to see whether or not they were going to be able to take that or what they needed to do to take it. And they came back, and the majority of the spies came back and said, I don't think we can do it. You know, they're bigger and stronger, and they've got more might, and why don't we just kind of camp here for a while, and maybe they'll just go away and leave. Except for two of the spies said, no, God said this is ours. God said go take it. If God wants us to have it, God will give it to us. And yet, because of their unbelief, God, God doesn't get frustrated because his plans are never thwarted, but God, you know, was relating to them. As, as we see the word that he uses uh, here, in um, in verse 10, I was provoked with that generation. The word provoked is, is, is helpful, and it certainly is faithful. Uh, some Old Testament scholars would say that, that a better word would be uh, disgusted. He just was disgusted with them. He provides for them, and then they grumble, and they rebel. They threaten the one that God provides through, and, and then they turn from the God who provides. They just are so focused on themselves that they are not thankful for anything that God has done for them, even when it comes to them in absolutely miraculous ways. The repeated cry is, did you bring us here so that we'll die here? Did you bring us through all these miracles in order that we would get from facing death to this point just so that we can die here? Their hearts express their lack of belief. And then the water problem arose again later on. And they grumbled and they threatened Moses again. And this time Moses, uh, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, go and speak to the rock this time. Moses, though, was so frustrated with the obnoxiousness of these people that as he was performing the duty and leading and providing the water, he strikes the rock again. The water came out because God is faithful, but the Lord had told Moses just to talk to it this time, and it was actually a, a, a disobeying God, and he paid the consequence. He was not allowed to enter into the promised land although he was allowed to see it. And you might think of that, well, what's the big deal? Well, the first time the rock was struck, it points to the Christ, who would be struck once for our salvation. But the second time that water had to come from the rock, speak to it, 
Christ has not struck a second time. But once he has struck and rose again, all we need to do is talk. It's called prayer. And God provides as we talk with him through prayer. And by striking it again, Moses has sent a wrong picture. Plus, he, he did it out of anger. But as frustrated as it would seem, why I use the word frustrated, as, as, as provoked as, the, as, as God was with, these, with, with Moses in this, even more so with the people. We just see over and over again, these people just did not trust God. Or their hearts had become so hard that they didn't want to trust God. And as a result, God's response to them was, these people shall not enter my rest. A whole generation would die before they were able to settle and experience God's rest. Now, the natural question is, what is this my rest that is being spoken of? And most Bible scholars would say, fundamentally, it is the promised land. It is the place that God had prepared for them, the place that they were to call home, the place where from home they would relate to God, they would receive from God, they would be a testimony to all of the other nations. And it was called, also referred to as my rest, is sometimes synonymous with the, with the promised land. It's kind of like if you have a vacation home, a beach home, if you go through some of those down Sandbridge or Outer Banks and you see people name their homes, well, the promised land was named my rest. And the people were to go to my rest. But the Lord said, you know what? They, just, they don't believe. They're hard-hearted. They rebel against me. We're just going to wait until the next generation to establish them in my rest. They will not experience my rest. But while the promised land or is, is, uh, is the destination for my rest, the promised land was also the place where God's people would live in harmony with him. Because my rest is not just the place of the promised land. My rest is the relationship that we have with God, that they were to have with God. That they were to rest in Him. They wouldn't have to strive. They wouldn't have to worry. They wouldn't have to just deal with anxiety about how to live day-to-day -day lives. Because they would trust in God. They could rest. And because they never got to the place where God had promised them because they had rebelled, they would never experience peace. They would never experience rest for the rest of the, the days of their lives. It would be another generation that God would allow into the land. And so the writer of Hebrews here is saying, look, there's a lesson that you need to, to learn here. Like your forefathers were on a journey, you are on a journey. They were on a journey to a particular place, and you're on a spiritual journey. And just as it was not easy for them, it's not easy for you. Because, see, these early readers of this letter were Jewish believers living in Rome, is what most of the scholars would believe. And as a result of having been Jewish believers in Jesus Christ, some of them had been rejected by their family members because they had embraced Jesus Christ. And because they were Jewish and Christian, they were under persecution from the Roman church. And the intensity of the persecution, the intensity of the oppression, was so great that the whole theme of this letter to the, to the Hebrews is to encourage them because some were beginning to feel the pressure and fall away. They had believed, they had experienced God's grace, but their hearts were becoming hard. They just couldn't take it anymore. God, deliver me from this circumstance. Rather than experience the promise of God and his presence that would enable us to live with whatever the circumstance, they were beginning to crack. And the writer of Hebrews is writing to encourage them. And just as the forefathers were on a journey, and we are on a journey. And, and the writer of Hebrews is speaking to us, even as he's speaking to the first readers, he's speaking to us through them. And he says, look, you're all on a journey. 
we are all in a spiritual journey, and living in this world is not easy. There is suffering, there's hardship, sometimes there's rejection and there's persecution, there's all sorts of things. But learn the lesson from your forefathers. Don't make the same mistakes they made. Remain faithful and experience rest. And that promise to us is immediate and tangible and real. Because this is the promised land was not the only dimension of my rest that the Lord was speaking of, that it was about the relationship that they would have with God. My rest is not just a place. In fact, it's not primarily a place. My rest is primarily a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. And he has said to you and to me and to all, come to me, and I will give you rest. And the writer of Hebrews, with that invitation, is saying, look, God is promising and giving us rest regardless of the circumstances that we might face. We're on this journey. It's not easy. Don't make the same mistakes as our forefathers did in the wilderness and get so caught up in your anxiety and your fears and your worry and your self-centeredness that you become hard-hearted to God, what God is doing and what how God is providing, that you're not thankful for what he gives, that you don't recognize that he is at work regardless of your circumstances, working out circumstances, working out all things for your good and for his glory, even if we don't understand. And so the lesson we are to learn is what happens to those who fall away. Now, the question about, well, what does it mean to fall away? Well, certainly there were some that were unbelievers, and, and therefore they fell away from the ultimate rest, which was the presence with God in heaven. But there's another dimension that we need to recognize here in terms of this lesson and even the uh, significance of the promised land. Because the reality is many who are Christians who will one day be saved and be in God's presence and experience heaven, we live our lives with no rest. Constant anxiety, constant fear, constant feeling of needing to strive and to prove ourselves. There is just no rest because we are not functionally believing we're not trusting that God will be faithful to his promise. And just because he's promised us in the past, that doesn't mean he's going to come through in the end. Our attitude, functionally, day to day, seems to be very much like that of our forefathers. And maybe that's not true of you, but it is true of me, because I recognize that over and over again, I, I identify with, uh, with uh, our forefathers in the wilderness. I can tell you a number of ways in which I've seen God work and provide in my life when it looked like you know it was the end, and it just in, in the amazing providence of God that I've gone through and continued on and been affirmed, and then the next challenge that comes to my life, my prayer is kind of, Lord, did you leave me here to kill me here? I mean, that's, that's where my heart constantly goes to. And, and so I understand where they are, but I don't think I'm alone in that. It, it seems to be almost a universal issue because there's difficulty in this life. And that which is immediate before us seems sometimes more real than God, even if God has shown himself in the past. I, I don't know if you are somebody who's kind of like I was at one point, thinking, if God would just show up in a powerful way, in a miraculous, then, you know, I would never doubt. Well, who was he talking about? People who had stood there before the Red Sea, a thing opens up, they cross, and then the whole army's done. How long do you think is going to make you forget about that? And yet they did, and they are no different than we are. We need to understand that the my rest that God is pointing to, even in the promised land, is a picture of the life that you and I now live. 
See, many of you have probably studied the Bible or been in Bible studies or heard preachers talk. We talk about the promised land. We sing songs, and when we talk about promised land, the first image that comes to mind is you think of the promised land as a metaphor for heaven. And I want to challenge that this morning. Because I don't think that the promised land is itself a picture of heaven. And here's the reason I would say that. How many battles do you think you're going to fight when you get to heaven? How many enemies do you think you have waiting in heaven? How many people do you think you need to clear out of heaven before you get there so that you can live peacefully? I hope your answer is zero, because that's what the scripture says. I mean, that is, God is reigning, all truth, all peace. We recognize the glory of God. We, we experience life the way it's supposed to be in heaven. And yet in the promised land, the instruction for God's people was to drive out all of the present inhabitants and not leave one standing. The problem was the people... They cleared up enough to be able to plot their houses down, but they left some standing, even thought some might be useful for them. The promised land is not a picture of heaven, it's a picture of our sanctification. When we believed in Jesus Christ, we now experienced eternal life, a taste of it, but more of it is to come in its fulfillment. But in this time, there are things that we need to do, like putting sin in our hearts to death. Clear it all out, leave none of it standing, because sin itself is metastatic. It, it just it continues to grow. It spreads into other areas of our lives. And if it's not put to death, it will put us to death. And so to experience peace in this life, we need to cling to God's providence. We need to cling to God's promises. Because there are battles. There are challenges that we have in this life. And we need to learn the lesson of our forefathers. Don't harden your heart just because things are hard and difficult in this life. But along with the lesson that we need to learn, the writer of the Hebrews also gives us a warning. It's kind of a warning that is similar to what you might see on TV on any given day. Because it's a warning about the, the dangers of bad heart health. That's what he has said. Don't harden your hearts today. If you hear God speaking, don't harden your hearts. When you see God at work in your life, don't harden your hearts against him. And so the writer, and we see it in, in verse 12 here, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And the writer of Hebrews is saying to us that the problem is not our circumstances. The problem is within every one of us. And in making that point, he's also revealing to us or reflecting the biblical truth about the centrality of the heart in everything that we do and whether we experience peace or whether we experience God's rest or not. The heart is the central aspect of everything that we do, everything we feel, and even the way that we choose to relate to God. Let me read to you from this book by counselors Tim Lane and Paul Tripp. The book's called How People Change. And listen to what they describe about the centrality of the heart that the writer of Hebrews is, is alerting us to here. The heart is the real or essential you. All of the ways in which the Bible refers to the inner person, mind, emotions, spirit, soul, will, etc., are summed up with the one term, heart. The heart is the steering wheel of every human being. Everything we do is shaped and controlled by what our heart desires. That's why the Bible is very clear that God wants our hearts. Only when God has your heart does he have you. As much as we are affected by the broken world and the sins of others against us, our greatest problem is 
our sin, the, the sin that resides within our hearts. That's why the message of the gospel, that God transforms our lives by transforming our hearts. Lasting change always comes through the heart. This is, the one, uh, this is one of Scripture's most thoroughly developed themes. But many of us have missed its profound implications. We need to, a deeper understanding of Proverbs 4.23. Above all else, guard your heart, for from it springs the, uh, the, uh, flow the springs of life. And in these words, and, and many others, we see this theme over and over in the Scripture. The problem is not our environment. The problem is not, certainly is not God, whether he's provided or not, whether he's given us enough information. In every one of us, even though we have been saved, still is infected by sin. And if we don't deal with it, if we don't drive it out, if we're not aware of that, then it can cause hardened heart when the circumstances are right. And when our hearts get hardened, we tend to rebel against God. Our hearts get hardened in a couple of different ways. Our hearts get hardened against God because our hearts are deceiving us. One of the problems we need to understand is, as God revealed through the prophet Jeremiah, is our hearts are deceitful beyond all measure. Who can understand? And we need to understand that principle because it's true of every one of us. Our hearts are deceitful. We kind of get that. Our hearts will lie to us at times. But our hearts are deceitful beyond all measure, which means you can't figure it out. The illustration I often use about this is related to my golf game, which is appropriate. If you've seen me play golf, you would think sin, too. But, um, and, uh, but I, I can hit the ball a fairly long way, but it usually goes over there even when the flag is there. But I know that it usually goes over here. I call it a slight fade. Other people that play with me who know how to play golf call it a, a, a real um, slice or even a shank. But since I know that it's likely to go over there, I aim over here. I mean, if I'm going to shoot off to the right anyway. But you know what happens when I aim over to the left in order to correct my, uh, my, my you know, misplace? All of a sudden, I develop the hook. For those who don't play golf, that means the ball goes the other way. And, and so I try to correct it. Well, it's kind of like that. Our hearts are deceitful to us. You, you can't just look at your heart and say, yeah, I kind of lean this way, so you know what? I'm going to compensate for it, and that way I'll get right where I need to be. Because as soon as you try to compensate, it's going to go another way. It's going to deceive you in another way. And, and functionally speaking, our hearts lie to us in one of two ways. Actually, in, in both ways. But at any given time, the heart will lead to us. One is the heart will lead to us and make us think that we are better than we are, that we deserve better. That's what the people in Israel uh, were thinking. We deserve more. Uh, for in our in-flight meal than, than this. We, we just, you know, we want to be upgraded to first class. We want something else. We deserve it. Look how we've had to suffer. And, and whatever it is, with that attitude of believing they deserve more, believing that they were better than they really were, they then became hardened against God and unthankful for what God had given them. They were the victims of, you know, the, the whole Snow White thing. You know, as the Wicked Wish was saying, you know, mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest? The mirror always lied and said, you. And when the mirror lies to you and you believe that you deserve more and you deserve more than God provides for you and you don't deserve to be in the circumstances that you're in, if you stay in them, watch our heart. Watch your heart because it tends to get hardened. Now, on the other side of the coin, when you're not buying anymore, that you're better than you think you are, or the, you know, the mirror is, you're no longer listening to that mirror, mirror on the wall. The heart will deceive you in this way and tell you that you're worthless. And you are unlovable. Just think of all the ways in which you have failed 
And think of all the ways that you have rebelled against God or just failed to keep it. You are just worthless. And so therefore you don't expect anything. And our hearts harden in order to protect ourselves from the depression and the ache and the pain. And we, therefore, even if we are believing in the sense that one day we will escape, we don't experience peace because our hearts have been hardened to any message that would bring us freedom. We just don't want to hear any more information. And as a result, we don't experience peace because we cannot hear what the Holy Spirit is speaking to us, which is to say, you are a mess, but you are God's mess, and you are loved deeply, as is demonstrated by the fact that he has provided for you not just your day-to-day -day needs, but your son who has redeemed you and has brought you into his peace. This issue of the heart, we're told we need to be aware of and we need to tend. Every one of us needs to recognize the heart is central and be constantly tending to it and aware of what our heart is telling us. When they're telling us that we're too good or we're too bad, it needs to tell us the truth. We have sinned, that sin needs to be put to death, but God came for sinners. Like you and me. He came in the person of Jesus Christ, and he bore our sin. So the price has been paid. The fact that you have it is no longer a barrier between you and God. And so we need to tend our hearts, and that's one of the implications of the warning. If you get a warning about heart disease, check your heart, make sure that your heart's in good condition. But it's easier said than done. And so God gives us a remedy, a way in which we can cultivate heart health. We see that in verse 13. Verse 13, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Need to wrap this up here quickly, but this is very important that we understand. The remedy that God is giving us here is His call to live our lives in community with other believers. Now, our American sensibilities may kind of chafe about the necessity of living in community with other believers. Kind of the DNA of our culture that most of us have grown up in is that we value that rugged individualist, the, the lone ranger, or Frank Sinatra's, I did it my way. We, we value those who have bucked the system and still seem to have come out on top, and we think that they are the real winners. And sometimes they are winners in this life, but we don't know the real story behind it. They just kind of, their PR person tells us that they've done that as if they've achieved things on their own. But as a whole, many of us, chafe at this idea of needing one another. And as a result, we, we know people, but people don't necessarily really know us. We only let them know what we want them to know. And the reality is, we probably only know what they want us to know. The scripture over and over again, and, and specifically here in this passage, is reminding us that isolation and individualism is deadly. We see it in, 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 in creation. Watch the National Geographic channel and some of those you know, predator cats. What they do is they isolate some other prey from the rest of their kind. And once they isolate it, then it becomes uh, easier, easier to fall victim. Think about your own you know, grill in the backyard. If you separate the coals, they die. But if you put them together, they ignite. And, and that's our lives. When we are separate, we are weak and are prone to dying. But when we are together, we have a strength. The scripture tells us in Proverbs, you know, the cord of 
You know, three strands is not easily broken. Over and over, we're told of the necessity of being in community. And the community can express itself in any number of ways. It's not going to be everybody in a church. You can't possibly know 300 people that are going to know everything about you. But there's got to be people in our lives that know you and speak to your life, both encouragement and correction. I'm incredibly thankful for the friends that I've had, many of them I've had for a number of years. And they know me so well. They call and just keep up, want to know what's going on. And I share with them what's going on. I share the burdens and my frustrations. Sometimes they're rational and real. Sometimes they're not. But they listen and they care and they offer encouragement and they offer correction. And some of these guys that I've known for so long, they know me so well, they'll call and ask how are things going and I give them an answer that seems too simple and they say, oh, that's good. Now, you know, cut the garbage and tell me the truth. Because they know either from circumstances that I've been going through and how I've dealt with things before or they know by my countenance or by the way I'm telling things that I'm not telling them the whole truth. And because they know me and they speak and they speak correction, and because of that, I am able to continue and to be sustained. I'm thankful for many of you who do the same thing for my life. Many of you offer encouragement at, at, at different times. Sometimes you're not even aware of it. I'm even thankful for those of you who help me to be a better Christian than I really want to be by pointing out that I'm not nearly as good as I think I am. I'm not necessarily thankful at the moment when that happens, but that's all part of living in community because we are strengthened, we are supported, we are encouraged, we are corrected. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying here for us is that we are to seek and to commit ourselves to being in that kind of community. And we are to exhort one another. That means we're to tell the truth to one another. We're to speak whatever is needed to be heard at any given moment. Sometimes it's correction. It always points us to the person of Jesus Christ, that we're re-rooted in our identity and what God has given to us. And he says again with that whole idea, but exhort one another every day, as long as it's today. It's always today. And the reason for that is in community that speaks into one another's life, it mitigates the tendency of our hearts to harden because they're constantly being tended. Not just by us who can deceive ourselves, but for people who love us and who are invested in us. It's providential that this is the text for today that we receive new members into the church. The body of Christ is where we are to commit ourselves and to live not just by showing up and being an aggregation, but a people who come together, who know one another, who are invested in each other's lives. The writer of the Hebrews is saying to us today, as he was saying to those who received this letter, life is hard, and you're on a journey. And on this journey... You're going to find difficulties, you're going to find hardships, and even if you have smooth sailing, we have this problem that's called sin that would rob us of the joy and the peace that we so long desire. Our tendency is to want to buck up and only present that which is good and only present ourselves when we know that we are good. But the fact is we never get there, or even if we could, we won't stay there. We are not designed to live in isolation. We are created for community, and according to God's design, we are better together. Father, bless us with your word and encouragement that we, your people, might be strengthened and recognize that your gifts that come both providentially and miraculously of them are those, our fellow believers, who love us and who walk with us and speak into our lives. Help us to be humble enough to seek and recognize our need. Help us to be loving enough to engage and to encourage others that the body of Christ might be built up until all reach full maturity, yet we are more and more like Christ.